Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I work at the American Enterprise Institute, where I'm a senior fellow in foreign and defense policy. I'm joined today by... Yulia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and unfortunately without Dalibor Rohaj today. Uh, yes, he has a medical priority, which we don't know too much about and shan't inquire further about. But on our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why these matter to the United States. Today, we're joined uh, by my boss, uh, Corey Shockey. So uh, let's get the pandering over with right away. <laughs> Um, and I won't go into Corey's background too terribly much, uh, uh, but um, suffice it to say she is of sufficient stature to have been invited to join a very high-level delegation recently returned from Kiev uh, that included a meeting with President Zelensky. So we're here today basically to get Corey's trip report, her impressions uh, from the trip, and to help her update our ongoing conversation about the war in Ukraine. If you enjoy the episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks and welcome. So, Corey, really over to you. It'd be nice if you could just sort of tell your story, and then uh, that'll be the basis, I'm sure, for a great conversation to follow. Sure. Um, I had the good fortune to be part of a small group that the Polish think tank PISM pulled together and at the invitations of uh, the president of Ukraine and with the help and support of the Polish presidency, we got to go see the logistics staging operation on the Polish side of the Ukrainian border and then go to Ukraine, to Kyiv, to Irpil um, and the surrounding areas. And it was an outstanding education. A couple of things that, that um, were most surprising to me was first, how normal Kiev feels. Uh, you know, uh, vibrancy has returned to the city. People are going to work. They're hanging out in coffee shops. Um, the only place that is heavily fortified and protected, and it's seriously, protected is the presidential palace. And understandably so, given that President Zelensky so personifies the resistance of the Ukrainian people to Russian invasion, and the way he has electrified and unified support for the war effort, both within Ukraine and internationally. The um, we talked to senior military people, uh, people in government, in civil society, and to the president himself. Uh, it was genuinely surprising. You know how they say never meet your heroes? Totally doesn't hold in this instance. <laughs> it was so impressive um, how for somebody carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, what a normal, nice squared away, inspiring and funny person President Zelensky is. You know, the easy humor. He was a comedian, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Not> a comedian. 
still, you know, it, yeah. not many people really meet the moment when history presents it to you. And President Zelensky really has. I'll give you an example. He asked us our, what advice we would give him, which, um, you know, every good strategist is basically a desperate paranoiac worrying about what they're not paying attention to that's going to snap up and bite them. Um, and so it's a fabulous question, even if um, it feels silly to ask, a, you know, for a great wartime leader to ask reckless college professors um, what he should be doing. My, my suggestion was that, you know, once they win the war, transparency and corruption are going to return as major impediments to Ukraine's Western orientation and to its reconstruction and recommended that they use the international involvement, both institutions and governments of reconstruction to reduce corruption and expand transparency. And he had the most beautiful reaction to it. He nodded along and said, of course, American taxpayers deserve that of us. <laughs> well, he knew he was. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he knew what the conversation in Washington about it. You know, if I could just interrupt for a second. The one thing that I always wondered about in this regard in thinking about a post-war Ukraine is, is what, <laughs> particularly apropos of our recent experience here, what a transition of government of power <clears throat> would look like if anybody's even, you know, uh, obviously there that is a long way away and let us hope that Zelensky remains um you know as as vibrant and as safe as he has thus far but you know that will be a certainly a question that victory will bring to the fore I'm just wondering if you know I, don't, I wouldn't ask him that question. <laughs> you know, when are you planning on retiring? Uh, but it's still a reasonable question. Yeah, I mean, he had a 27% approval rating before the invasion. It yeah. bounced by 70 points. Uh, he has a 97% approval rating among Ukrainians now. Um, whether that will get the Churchill treatment after the war is for Ukrainians yeah. to decide. Um, but it was really striking. It's not just President Zelensky who Ukrainians have ha, are celebrating in this moment. I mean, the parliament has a 94% approval rating. The defense ministry has a 98% approval rating. They have succeeded oh. in pulling together as a country. We, we, this is part of the Eastern Front. There's always a, <laughs> both Dalibor and Julia, those dogs are uh, Hounds, please, a place. They, yeah, that's it feels right. appropriate for the Eastern Front. <laughs> right. um, several, uh, there is a lot of thinking in the, in the presidential circles about post-war. A lot of anxiety about the necessity of reconstructing the economy and how to do so. It seems to me that President Zelensky and the people around him uh, were, were very generous in their lack of criticism of Germany, France, other countries who are withholding war material support. And I suspect that has a fair amount to do with the amount of German, French, and other money they're going to need to rebuild the country subsequently. He did have a really interesting 
riff on uh, European energy needs and, and pointed out the safety and security of Ukrainian nuclear power plants and suggested that if Europe wants to uh, reduce its reliance on Russia for energy, Ukraine could be building nuclear power plants for everybody. Well, first, first of all, they have to drive the Russians out of Zaporizhia, but... Uh... Yes. So to that, um, talking to both Polish and Ukrainian militaries, first of all, it was so impressive how much in, in the space of 20 or 25 years in a Polish case, in the space of 10 years or so in Ukraine's case, they have adopted the manner, the vocabulary, the, the strategic judgment of American military officers. It, it's really quite striking. You can feel the fingerprints of American <laughs> military culture all over these guys. So for example, when, uh, when I asked one Ukrainian senior officer, uh, how long can you all sustain the forward momentum of your offensive? It gave me a magnificent war college answer of all of the things it depends on, um, all of the things he was worried about. For example, uh, that Ukraine has neither enough equipment nor enough troops to be able to train while they are prosecuting the offensive. And that worries military leadership a lot about potential brittleness in the force over time. And that's exactly the right thing to be worried about, even as they stay, continue the stampede of success of their offensive. The weapons they most wanted uh, from the West, air defenses first and foremost. You know, the missile attacks on Russian cities. Meaning air defenses for the cities, basically. Yes. Yeah, okay. The air defenses of the logistics post in Poland are are super impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as President Zelensky said, you know, they need to close the skies over Ukraine's cities to be able to reduce the terrible human costs for civilians of the war, because as Russia's military efficacy declines, they, I mean, they were always indiscriminately targeting civilians, but it's the main purpose of their military effort now. It's all they got left, really. All they got left, exactly right, Giselle. Um, another interesting thing for me, I promise I will-, I will No, you, we should just shut up and let you go, really. Um, was it was really interesting and heartening for me how across government, civil society, civilian, military, um, everybody is thinking about the potential for Russian nuclear use against civilian mm. populations. And the people were unanimous in the conclusion that it won't change the outcome of the war it will simply raise the cost of it. I remember reading that um, in, I think one of the, your most recent articles in the Atlantic and it struck me um, because it's very much in line with how um, I, and I guess we perceived Ukrainians when Dalibor and I went in June to Kyiv, also that Kyiv was already very much alive and that was pretty striking fresh after the, 
the battle for Kyiv, um, they were not talking at that moment that much about nuclear escalation, as I'm guessing they have done while you were there. Um, but the same attitudes of uh, we need to keep fighting, we don't really have a chance whether our allies and partners will continue to support us or not. And um, you talking about your recent trip reminded me of how, you know, what Dalibor and I sort of went through going in there. And I'm very curious to hear from you whether this trip and actually meeting Zelensky and, and the establishment, the decision makers has changed in any way your understanding of how this war will um, continue and then end, or maybe it has solidified um, in some of the thoughts that you had regarding and the, the understanding that you had regarding this war. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your personal take post-trip and, and before the trip? And then the other thing to sort of pile on that, because I think it fits um, well into that, is something you also mentioned earlier, air defense systems. Um, you sort of um, preempted the question that we always like to ask, especially from our Ukrainian guests, but beyond what do Ukrainians need and what are they asking for? We've had a very long discussion, particularly here in Washington, over the course of the last seven months, what we should be delivering and whatnot. And air defense systems, despite them being de defensive in that debate, have been not yet on the on the shopping list, but more on the wish list. Um, how do you see that fitting in in terms of um, what um, how the war can evolve in the months to come as we're expecting a cold winter? Um, but also a very heated battleground potentially. Yeah, um, well, overall, it didn't change my assessment of how the war is going, which is the Russians are losing, uh, thankfully. Um, it, it was incredibly educational. Um, there were a lot of things I didn't know uh, that I learned that mostly reinforced that judgment. Um, the Ukrainians have succeeded it for the most part in pushing Russian military forces out of range of the major cities with the exception of Kharkiv um, and, and Odessa and the cities in the Eastern Donbass. Um, and that means that the only way Russia can terrorize those population centers is with long-range missiles. Um, and, and so I think that's why air defenses have moved way up in the Ukrainian wish list, because they're succeeding so well yeah. um, that, that it's created a different set of needs for them. Um, one, one of the... One of the things I keep uh, circling back to is something President Zelensky said, and it really captured for me the fine-grained texture, both of his own thinking and of how smart he is about shaping the stories we tell ourselves about the war. Because, for example, he said, you know, I begin to hear a lot of people saying Ukraine should make concessions to make negotiations possible. 
That's not what we're doing. What we are doing is setting the conditions to make negotiations possible. And that's such a nuanced picking up of the way we in the West are talking about our concerns and reframing them in a way that makes it uh, you know, common sense, of course, setting the conditions is always what war termination is about. So I think those kinds of um, sensibilities about how they're thinking about the nature of their conflict and the risks they're running was a genuinely extraordinary education. I think we should offer this guy a chair in strategic studies uh, <laughs> when he does decide to, to set that. You know, Corey, one of the things you said earlier um, is, is something that we haven't talked so much uh, about on the podcast. Um, routinely, we uh, point out the um, shortcomings of the German chancellor's policy toward Ukraine. But it has been striking how um, uh, the Ukrainians, who have, you know, probably the biggest reason for complaint, have been fairly mild mannered in their. Uh, uh, you know, at least in their rhetoric. Um, can, can you pull on that thread a little bit? Is that something that they, they talked about? Um, do they expect that uh, if they're, or when they're successful, that they'll then, you know, say, okay, Berlin, time for you to pitch in in a serious way? Was there much discussion? No, not they were incredibly diplomatic about what was and wasn't being done. I mean, every single person in the Ukrainian government that we talked to led with, they are fundamentally dependent on Western assistance in order to win this war and their gratitude for the assistance that's been given, right? Like they weren't complaining about and not getting airplanes. They weren't complaining about the slow pace of stuff. Their desperation came through very clearly, but, but the message they were incredibly um, on point with yeah. again and again, was, and they, the group was not simply American. It also had an Australian, a Frenchman, and a Brit in the mix, and yet, what the Ukrainians said was how grateful that they are to the West and how much they understand American leadership made all Western assistance possible. It was a humbling reminder of how much it matters that the U.S. engages with the world, not just because of what we contribute, but because we create the framework in which others also contribute. Yeah, I think um, this part of the this war generally wars but um, specifically this one in the importance of coalition building gets underestimated and I think um, we here are not um, shy to criticize the Biden administration when we think it doesn't do enough and there's not enough weapons and, and not enough support but credit where credit is due the Biden administration so far has been doing a tremendous job in coalition building and coalition management, really. So this is um, something where I would love to drill in a little bit more. 
of course, we have midterms that's um, here on everybody's mind. Um, but it's also when looking, at, especially at the transatlantic space of the West, um, this war has made divisions clear and the voices that we hear from France, from Germany, from Italy and beyond are mostly driven by fear of what it is to come in the fall and in the winter with a premise that this is Putin's um, long game, um, that he is waiting for the winter. And so we keep grappling with the question of will the coalition hold um, and how will we get through the fall and winter? So looking particularly at Washington, Corey, how do you assess this? What are the biggest challenges for this administration um, in the months to come to keep the coalition going? Because without United States leadership, I'm glad the Ukrainians um, realize this and, and voice this um, as much as we do. Um, this would all very quickly fall apart. I think the biggest challenge for continued American support is the president himself. Um, I, I was pleased to hear President Biden's speech at the UN General Assembly yesterday. I know um, that members of the cabinet are continue to, you know, say publicly the number of times President Biden has said uh, that we will stand with Ukraine until they win this war. Um, suggests to me that they are worried about holding the president to his <laughs> words. And of course, this is an administration that has real problems with the effective use of force, both in theory and in practice. You know, in the September, it was, we can't give weapons to Ukraine because uh, they'll just lose and they'll be in the hands of the Russians. By December, it was, we can't give offensive weapons, only defensive. By March, it was, well, we can give offensive weapons, but none that range Soviet Russian territory. By June, it was, well, we'll give them weapons that range Russian territory, but they promise they won't use it that way. Then when Ukraine strikes um, Crimea, the American administration, to its credit, pointed out that this isn't Russian territory, it's Ukrainian territory. So you can see the direction of travel. I grieve at the cost to Ukraine of the slow pace of our progress. And I resent that a way that the Biden administration in the New York Times piece from a couple of days ago is congratulating itself on having prevented Russian escalation with the pace of our moves. But I don't actually, you know, the American government typically responds to American public attitudes, doesn't lead them. And there's a Pew poll out today showing that um, concern about the possibility of U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine leading to a broader war with Russia has declined from 49% in May to only 32% of Americans now. Um, and there's, you know, all of the polling suggests that Americans are listening to the courage and example of the Ukrainian people and the depredations and awfulness of Russia 
and are increasingly willing to run risks and support Ukraine. Well, having an enemy that routinely commits war crimes without, uh, you know, compunction is, 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 is not the way to win hearts and minds in the United States. But it's a nice tribute to the good judgment of the American people that they are not hiding in the closet and saying, we have two oceans and great neighbors. They are saying Ukrainians deserve our help and we should precisely because we live safely, we should be willing to run risks for them. And, and look, it's also a pretty good judgment about what's happening uh, on the battlefield as well, too. I mean, it, the, one of the narratives uh, that has collapsed utterly is that the Ukrainians can't win. Uh, I mean, there are still, you know, diehards, both in this country and in Europe, but you know, like I say, that 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 narrative has pretty much, uh, you know, lost its uh, lost its steam. I think that's even true. I mean, this may be a good spot to end is to use your recent experience to try to help us interpret what may be coming. The other the other day, where <laughs> Putin gave his best uh, James Bond villain uh, impression while. Uh, uh, telling his own people that he was going to throw hundreds of thousands, if not millions more of them, into the meat grinder that Ukraine has uh, become, what the Russian response to take to the streets finally, or head for Finland, uh, you know, or Serbia, depending on, uh, you know, your status in society. You know, to me, that looks like a real confession of weakness, but also opening a window of opportunity uh, to to really grab a decisive victory in in short order. So, um, you know, again, maybe you could try to look at this the way that President Zelensky and his advisors may do you know do do an act of uh, empathetic projection in that way um and then of course if president biden happens to be listening uh, we, we can tell him what to do as well <laughs> uh so i agree with your judgment that russia that putin's announcement yesterday and the rushed legislation in the russian duma to make possible um, the call-ups. The beatings and, will continue until morale. And the terrible way it's being carried out, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is, um, you know, forced rounding up of people, especially ethnic minorities, especially in rural areas. Um, but in schools too already, though he had promised that's not yeah. going to happen, so. Yeah, horrible. this is awful. And it's not going to produce soldiers. You know, they, Russia already threw its best soldiers at right. Ukraine. It's all downhill from here. Yeah, yeah. It, it's going to be terrible. One interesting um, near-term potential political victory is the Ukrainians have between 10 and 15,000 Russian troops pen, pinned against the river near Kherson. And, and the negotiations for surrender are, I believe, underway. 
And so the picture of thousands of Russian prisoners of war having surrendered to Ukraine, being marched off to some place um, where they can be uh, held consistent with the Geneva Conventions is going to be a huge blow to Russian morale and, and a huge political problem, thankfully, for Vladimir Putin. It's, it's interesting that the Russians finally released a couple hundred as of Stahl uh, survivors. <laughs> Maybe they were, uh, you know, anticipating that they might be on the uh, other side of that equation fairly shortly. Yeah. And but so the war wait. Crimes that Russia has committed, um, it's going to be very hard for them to argue, um, you know, humane treatment. I expect that will be provided by Ukraine, but not because Russia deserves it, because of who Ukraine is, not because of who Russia is. And so before we wrap up, um, looking into the months ahead, fall and winter, apart from the cold weather and the fears of the Europeans, um, what are you looking towards? What are, are you expecting from, from the operational theater itself? Um, do you think that um, we will, beyond the Kherson potential um, surrender, that we will see sort of um, Putin's buying of time and grinding down to keep um, with those um, few hundred thousand recruits um, ill-trained to keep the ground that he has secured and that is, you know, destroyed to the bone? Um, or do you, um, should we be expecting um, this to be less of a protracted conflict? In the end, I think something that you sort of alluded to diplomatically when we talked about the Biden administration's um, policy in this war is, the longer that we wait, the more it will cost in human lives and in, um, and of course, in very pragmatic financial numbers, including in US dollars. So if, if now is the moment to grab, um, to grab the initiative and secure victory by um, in, in the end um, costing us less, in if, Biden is listening or his staff, what would your um, advice be for the months to come? So I agree with Giselle's earlier comment that a decisive victory is within Ukraine's grasp and we ought to slam the gas pedal to the floor and provide them the weapons and the support to make it possible. It is not the pace by which Russia is losing is not the issue. <laughs> and we shouldn't pretend that it is. The, um, I, I believe by the spring, Ukraine will have won this war. I hope uh, on New Year's Eve, we are toasting Ukraine's victory and restoration of all of its territory. I asked a senior Ukrainian military officer um, uh, how how worried are you about, you know, the onset of winter? Is this going to freeze it in place? And he shrugged and said, we fight in the winter all the time. <laughs> you know, you, the Ukrainians have played their part so incredibly well. It's, you know, I wish we could sort it's of like bottle up some of that and bring it. I hope you too, there's a 
you know, a bottle of Ukrainian spirit that you brought home <laughs> with you to share with us all. But look, I will just, in some ways, Putin just signed a death warrant for 300,000 Russians. So the pace of the war is going to matter, and it would be an act of mercy to accelerate the um, date on which Ukraine is is victorious. And I, I really hope that our, our government takes that to, to heart and uh, you know understands that this is not just a matter of strategy and international politics, but sort of the most stark moral uh choice uh of men in many years so before i tear up entirely uh let's bring this to <laughs> to uh to a wrap up so from me giselle donnelly and thanks for listening to the eastern front our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the baltic sea to the black sea uh, we now have a newsletter that's live that you can sign up for uh, through the link included in the show notes, and you'll get a biweekly update of newly released episodes, an exclusive Q&A uh, with your hosts, uh, and you'll stay up to date with the most recent writings, op-eds, and articles from us on security challenges on the Eastern Front. I can also... Uh, let you in on a little secret that Eastern Front merchandise is not far off. So, you should, yes. Uh, so, uh, those of you stalwarts amongst the Eastern Front um, uh, listening community uh, will soon be able to show your colors uh, and drink your coffee in a coffee mug dedicated to the spirit of. Uh, uh, Ukrainian liberty and Eastern European liberty. So stand by for updates on that. I'm sure we'll give them away um, uh, like hotcakes. Uh, if you enjoy our episode, this episode and the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever get, you get your podcasts. You can also uh, hit us up on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod. That's one word. Uh, uh, and follow us there. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.